and welcome to History is Gay, a podcast that examines the underappreciated and overlooked queer ladies, gents, and gentle envies that have always been there in the unexplored corners of history, because history has never been as straight as you think. I'm Lee. And I'm Gretchen. And in this episode we bring to you today, we are talking about the relationship between LGBT rights and the labor movement. Right, because when you are listening to this, today is is Labor Day. Woo! Yes. Woo! So we figured we would try and be uh, aware of the calendar. Yes. And <laughs> Topical. If you will. That's a good way to put it. Yep. (laughs) So yeah, we are going to be diving in. We're going to follow a little bit of a different format this episode. We've been doing a lot of different formats. We're expanding our horizons. Yeah. This is going to be like a big, we're going to give you an overview, a nice, a nice timeline. But before we get into that, I think we've got some, some follow up from a previous episode that Gretchen found out. Yeah, we do. This was uh, information that was sent to us over Twitter. Unfortunately, I say unfortunately because it shoots kind of shoots down one of our discussions, but this is a follow-up on our discussion about Egypt, specifically the Egyptian tomb with the men in it named Khnumhotep and Nyachnum. Apparently, scientists have used uh, mitochondrial DNA from their bone marrow and determined that they are, or were, <laughs> I should say, they're not actually alive, uh, they were, in fact, half-brothers. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, Khnum Ah was apparently referred to as the mother of both men, but they didn't have a way of, you know, verifying it, and it could have been, like, stylistic. But DNA has confirmed that the two men had the same mother, but different fathers. I still think it feels pretty homoerotic. I mean, let's be real, right? This was ancient Egypt. Familial relations. I mean, we all know, like... (sighs) They there are several examples in the Egyptian royalty of marrying siblings yeah, and first cousins so and other closely related people. It's, it's I don't think it's like a one you know one excludes the other one precludes the other whatever. I I think right. there's I think there's room for both interpretations. But regardless, right. right? They they just loved each other that much. Whether it was a familial love or a romantic love, the love between two men was still highly recognized so right there you go yeah yeah Khnum, uh was was like written on both of their sarcophag sarcophagi right is that what it like originally yep. was and then the the dna confirmed it yeah okay yep ah interesting so it still stands out though as a really unusual burial because we even with other siblings whether half or full we don't usually find well we haven't found any other i think burials that are quite like this mm-hmm. so it's unique it's interesting and it doesn't really negate anything of what we said about yeah, gender. Absolutely. So, and, and, and it is still a problem within archaeology and history of looking at things like this and trying to avoid any kind of homoerotic subtext. Like, hashtag no homo is still a really big problem in history and archaeology, mm-hmm. regardless of whether or not this particular example, wherever this falls on one line or the other, that's still like a really, really, really huge problem. Yep. So still relevant. Yeah. <laughs> Still relevant, and we still wanted to bring that to you guys' attention because we want to be as accurate as possible. 
And sometimes these things happen when, I mean, regardless of how you interpret anything, as soon as you find new information and evidence, you reevaluate your theory and you move on. So we're trying to be accurate, you guys. We're doing everything we can. We are just as fallible as interpreters as everybody else. (laughs) Just because we have degrees doesn't mean we're omnipotent or omniscient. (laughs) Right. I mean, there are some people who would like to believe that having a degree would make them that, but they would be wrong. It does not. Does not. <laughs> so yeah. Right. So with that, I don't think we have any content warnings. Do um, we? I would say the you know the only thing that I would warn against is that this this discussion is be going going to be going into a lot of history of LGBT civil rights, and so there will be discussions and mentions of homophobia, transphobia, but nothing super overt. Just day to day funness of being queer in Western society. So you know. Right. But yeah. And uh, like we said, it's going to be, you know, it's going to be more of kind of a timeline sort of focused episode. And as usual, we'll end the podcast with how gay were they, our personal ranking about how likely it is that they weren't straight. And yeah. And as for new, uh, new fun announcements, we have, we have launched a store. It's really neat. You can, you can now buy History is Gay fun stuff to put on your body or carry things in, like in a tote that says history is gay and because history has never been as straight as you think and you could show off to all your friends and it'd be super cool i'm gonna get one it's really neat we're really excited to release this to everybody right yeah i love tote bags i live in madison and we are a big fan of uh reusable grocery shopping bags so and many of the ones i have are quite gay so I'm probably going to get one for myself yeah. because, <laughs> because it looks really awesome. We're going to have t-shirts and tanks. We, or we do. We have t-shirts. We have tanks. We have a couple of hoodies. And we have our totes. And very soon we will also have designs coming up for our coastal bisexual, land gay, and ocean lesbian, which we are very, very, very excited for that. Yes. Yeah. We, we may already have it up by the time you are listening to this. This is the problem with recording super, super early. So who knows? <laughs> it's a surprise to us right now. It may be, you know, behind the times for you. You guys are in the future. Wow. It's, it's like Schrodinger's store envy. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> is it up or is it not? Whoa. I don't know. <laughs> it's both at the same time. Every time we podcast, we're time traveling. Yes. Or I guess the people who are listening to us are time traveling into the past. Uh, they are. Anyway, well, I mean, I mean we are always traveling <laughs> into the past. It's very true. It's very <laughs> That's appropriate. What this podcast is about. <laughs> so, with that, let's get into our main topic, which is LGBT rights and labor unions and the relationship between those. So, one thing that I mean, I guess the question could be raised like, why would we even talk about this other than it being topical because today is Labor Day? Why else would you talk about this? And as we're doing research, Sarah Smith, who wrote the article Queer Activism in the Labor Movement, which we will link to in our show notes, has this to say. While many labor historians have grappled with the fraught and also inspiring legacy of struggles around race and gender within labor unions, very little has been written about activism for the rights of queer workers within the labor movement. At the same time, historians of U.S. queer history have considered working-class queer subculture, but generally have not crossed over to examine a queer history at work or within the labor organization. So that's kind of what we're doing. That's why we wanted to talk about this because, I mean, I didn't know before we started doing this research just how closely intertwined mm. 
the labor movement and the LGBT civil rights movement has been for over 100 years. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've been bedfellows together for a very, very long time, and I was not aware yeah, of that. It's really uh, not sh- not shifted my perspective, but yeah, given me a, a much higher awareness and gratefulness for the work that has been done on the labor side. And, you know, we'll talk about it at the end, but I think that, you know, we as queer people have a big responsibility to really kind of hone and focus in on, especially right now in our political climate and some of the things that have come to pass with certain decisions and all of that. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So as we kind of hinted at, this is going to be more of a general overview kind of episode of the relationship between these two movements. But we definitely will circle back around to talk about many of the individuals in detail further down the line, because there were definitely a couple of people that as I was reading, I was like, oh, God, I want to talk about her. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) She sounds fucking awesome. I want to talk about this person for a really long time. So we will come back to some of the specific individuals. So this is just going to be kind of an overview, big picture kind of thing, and we can come back and talk in detail later because because this is our podcast, and that's what we do. (laughs) (laughs) We could do whatever we want. (laughs) So yeah, big thesis about this, right, is LGBT rights are workers' rights. There's been a long Mm -hmm. history of collaboration between the two movements of having queer folks at the forefront of contract negotiations and unionizing, and also of unions protecting queer folks from discrimination before the private sector caught up. Shane Larson, the co-president of the organization Pride at Work, which we'll get into later, says, The power of a strong and vibrant labor movement has been a critical piece to advancing our full equality in society. It's important that our LGBT community continues to stand alongside all workers in their fight for economic justice and a voice in their workplace. Mm-hmm. Right. And really, when you think about it, workers, you know, union workers and queer people have a lot of shared struggles. There's workplace discrimination, the desire to have their status protected from abuse and exploitation. And because of these shared struggles, they have a lot of shared goals, greater support and the right to negotiate to protect themselves, pushing for more inclusive health care, all of these things that they have in common. And they also have then common values both queer folk and, you know, working class folk value the idea that what benefits the group benefits the individual within the group, value the dignity of poor and working class, the idea that society and businesses ought to take care of the most marginalized and undervalued. A lot of people who are working class are people who have not, who are not generally taken care of by the broader spectrum of society. Like they need to unionize because they're vulnerable in some way, because unions protected workers from exploitation. And hey, LGBT folk are open to being exploited. (laughs) What? (laughs) Right? So it makes sense when you start thinking about it, why these two groups of people would have a lot in common and why they would be supporting each other. And like, yes, it is important to acknowledge that there have been individual LGBT folk who have been activists for reform and those who have been on the side of the status quo or businesses. But most openly queer activists were already political dissidents in one form or another. So it makes sense that they would take the side of unions, according to one of our sources, quote, it is the political outsiders who have been most open about their queerness. Having already put their status on the line as dissidents, some have found that openness about queer identity has actually given them a political edge. So by already kind of being an activist in some regard for many people gave them the space to not just be activists for unions, but to be like, oh, right, I'm queer as well. Hey, everybody, like I'm already on the margins. I'm already an activist. I'm already in the public eye. 
I'll be open. So in some ways, like the labor movement created space for people to be open in a way they might not have been able to elsewhere. Though, I mean, there are also people for whom, because they were in the public eye and they did not want to harm the movement, they chose not to come out, which is, again, something we will mm-hmm. talk about. Yeah. I mean, and as we saw with Brenda Howard, this is very similar to what we talked about with Brenda Howard and Gilbert Baker. Many queer men and women would band with other protesters to fight for their rights and resist discrimination. A lot of people who are in the LGBT rights movement were also helping, you know, the civil rights movement for people of color. They were anti-war protesters and they were also involved in labor unions. There's a lot of crossover between, Mm -hmm. you know, it was kind of a like, well, we're already fighting the power. Let's fight the power for everybody. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Well, and and homophobia and anti-union stances also usually went together as part of like a conservative mindset in the civil rights era. I mean, you know, as we know today, like a lot of right-wing conservative groups and politicians tend to be, you know, pro-corporate entities, pro-quote-unquote traditional moral values. These things have been together for quite some time. And so most unions that were, were open to queer rights were generally more open on issues of race and gender in general. The AFT, uh, which we'll be talking about a lot, which is the American Federation of Teachers, for example, they had a long history of being supportive of civil rights. They filed a brief against Brown versus Board of Education and expelled locals who refused to follow desegregation, for instance. And they were perhaps the first union to pass a resolution against discrimination against people being homosexual in the 1970s. Right. Though, I mean, at the same time, we also have to admit that not all of the labor movement was open to queer rights. Ed Hunt, who was the a white gay man involved in union reform politics within the AFSCME, the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees. Sorry, guys. We're just going to warn. Maybe should have put this in content warnings. Lots of acronyms. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so Very, many so acronyms. Many acronyms. I, I tend to just read this one as AFSCME. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I don't know if that's actually how it's pronounced, but I'm not in a union, so I don't know. Right. And it's much easier than spelling out every letter. So AFSCME. So Ed Hunt, a white gay man involved in union reform politics within AFSCME, ran for his union's executive board. His co-workers defaced his flyers with the F word, the queer F word, and the word queer, and then crossed out for executive board and replaced it with for first lady. So... Yeah, even though there have been a lot of strong ties between the labor movement and LGBT rights movement, that's not to say that it's always been amicable and they've always been on the same side. It's just, for the most part, the general trend is that there has been like a strong similarity in goals and a pretty, you know, general support system between Mm -hmm. the two. But we do want to acknowledge it's not all sunshine and roses all the time. And it, it seems to be, you know, a pretty natural collaboration considering, and we'll, we will get into this, the fact that there is a huge contingent of queer people who are blue-collar workers, who are quote-unquote lower-class workers, who benefit from unionization, from needing mm-hmm. protections in, I mean, all of us need protections in the workplace, but the the chances of queer people being in like executive management states in the 70s and 80s less common than it would be now right and if they were queer they probably were not openly Out. so exactly and even if they wanted to support their fellow members of the community who were in labor unions again because they weren't out they might not have been able to even be vocal for union yeah. rights so so 
Yeah. Let's let's get into the kind of we're we're going to be focusing mostly in, you know, mostly in 21st century, but we wanted to start off with some kind of protests and organizations up to the early 21st century and and queer folks who got involved in labor movements early early on. Gretchen, mm-hmm. do you want to talk a little bit about our fave who always I know, comes right? Up? <laughs> like I feel like it always goes back to Oscar Wilde at some point. Like we should have like a like a jar. It's like every time we say Oscar Wilde, ding, put ding, put a quarter ding. in the jar or there something. So yeah, Oscar Wilde. Haha. <laughs> We're talking about Oscar Wilde. He was a gay socialist who wrote essays like The Soul of Man Under Socialism, where he imagined a world without rich and poor. While in the United States in 1885, he stopped by Colorado to visit with silver miners. So he was very much interested in the working class conditions in America. And he was also the only English writer to support the Haymaker Martyrs, which were Chicago anarchists and labor leaders who were framed for on bombing charges and faced the gallows. So he was openly supportive of them. And he was also imprisoned both for being gay, which a lot of people think about, but also for being anti-establishment, mm-hmm. which I think is the less well-known aspect of him being imprisoned was that it wasn't just that he was gay it was that he also was like socialism sounds great yeah. <laughs> um so yeah roots run deep and they run even deeper and we'll probably talk about other things like that but uh we wanted to start with oscar wilde just because i mean because it's oscar wilde at this point he's the mascot of this podcast i mean <laughs> As we, as we said with uh, in our episode with Dan, like Oscar Wilde would be so pleased to find out that he is kind of what people think of when that like if people don't know any person who's gay from history, if they only know one mm-hmm. person, I bet money it's Oscar Wilde. <laughs> like, <laughs> exactly. Everyone knows Oscar Wilde was gay. Oh man, um, and he would be so pleased with that. So, so happy. Shout out to Oscar <laughs> yeah. Wilde. Um, but he's not the he's not the only person that we have that was you know somewhat involved in the union milieu uh, in the early 1900s. We have the story of someone who was likely a transgender man who was part of a boilermakers union. So like queer people have been actually part of and running trade unions since the very beginning. So yeah, so this is a story that actually comes from, uh, I have a really fantastic book that is a compilation of different sources from gay and lesbian Americans in United States history. And there's a story of a 13-year-old, and I put girl in quotes because this person most likely, I, you know, ended up identifying as a man, who in 1900 was rescued from a hurricane that destroyed her hometown of Galveston, Texas, and wiped out her entire family. So this 13-year-old then took the name Bill, dressed as a boy, and then traveled north and took on kind of menial jobs to make a living and ended up in St. Louis, Missouri in 1902 at the American Rattan Works making baskets and chairs. And so um, the American sexologist Havelock Ellis, who is, you know, a precursor to Kinsey, basically writes about Bill at this time, quote, associating with fellow workmen on a footing of masculine equality. One day a workman noticed the extreme smallness and dexterity of her hands. Gee, Bill, you should have been a girl. How do you know I'm not? She retorted. I love Bill already. Ellis also noted that Bill was basically a badass, writing that, quote, She drank, she swore, she courted girls, she worked as hard as her fellows, she fished and camped, she told stories with the rest of them, and she did not flinch when the talk grew strong. She even chewed tobacco. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> and so the reason why we're mentioning Bill is because 
He actually joined the International Brotherhood of Boilermakers, and as Miriam Frank in her book Out in the Union, which is a history of queer labor America, which is going to be our primary source for a lot of this, notes mm-hmm. that it was probably the Boilermakers Lodge 27, which was the main, the main union in the area. So Bill joined as an apprentice, quote, wielding a hammer and driving in hot rivets, and became popular and well-respected enough with his co-workers to be elected secretary of his lodge. And I thought this was really cool, is that when Bill applied for an insurance policy that the union, you know, was providing, he was required to pass a doctor's exam, and he apparently passed it as male, and the physician remarked, you are a fine specimen of physical manhood, young fellow, take good care of yourself. Aw, good for Bill. Good for Bill. Yeah, his story kind of comes to an abrupt end. We really don't know a lot about him. He's not really kind of mentioned in a lot of the, like, logbooks for the Boilermakers. Ellis notes that, quote, in a moment of weakness, she admitted her sex and returned to the garments of womanhood. So, you know, Mm. we don't really know exactly how this person would have identified, but we have the instance of a person who called themselves Bill and was secretary of a Boilermaker Lodge in... 19 like oh nine is when when the case came forward uh and people started knowing about it so i think that was yeah that was a pretty cool story that i i I really liked miriam frank kind of starts out the entire book talking about bill oh i like bill (laughs) bill sounds awesome yeah so this brings us to feminists and lesbians during the period of the first and second world wars So women working in American factories during this time period faced really horrid conditions, but were for the most part ignored by the American Federation of Labor, which was mostly made up of, guess what, artisans and craftsmen who were white and male. Big surprise. So the organization of protecting women fell to feminists. You know, the male labor unions weren't protecting them, so feminists, many of whom were lesbians, were the ones that fought for union rights for women. So we have examples of Pauline Newman, which is uh, the next three are people that I definitely want <laughs> to come back to because I started digging into the biography. I was going to like put more in our outline and then I was like, oh no, we can do a whole episode just on these three women. Yes. So I'm just going to be brief and we'll come back to them. <laughs> it's the story of our life. So, I know, right? So Pauline Newman was a Jewish lesbian and a member of the Women's Trade Union. And she was one of the first to organize female textile and candy workers. Rose Schneiderman, who was another Jewish lesbian and a socialist, continued Newman's work and was only able to become a paid organizer in the women's labor union movement because of a generous donation from an anonymous lesbian who still remains anonymous. And I really want to know who she was. Can I I get a generous donation from an anonymous lesbian? I would like this. Hey. Hi, anonymous lesbians in the world. Can you give us anonymous donations? <laughs> That'd be great. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, there. then we have Dr. Marie Aqui, who was a doctor and a, quote, lesbian firebrand uh. and a member of the industrial workers of the world. She owned no- earned notoriety for treating her injured comrades and distributing contraceptives. Yay. Good job. Good job, Marie. And she was jailed for treason for being a socialist during World War I. But the Oregon AFL, which is the American Federation of Labor, so I guess by this time they were helping women, uh, spoke on her behalf. So we've got three lovely lesbians, two of whom were Jewish. And I think that's great because, again, Jews are folks who don't get a lot of recognition for all of the work that they do. Mm -hmm. Uh, As we saw when we talked about Hirschfeld, that 
These are people who've done a lot since the very beginning. And Western history does not tend to focus on all of the things that they've done for us. So yeah, I want to do an episode on Jewish lesbian socialists. <laughs> yeah, Jewish lesbian socialists. Yes. I like this plan. <laughs> so yeah, so then we move into the 1930s and 1940s, where we have the National Union of Marine Cooks and Stewards, so NUMCS, where they elected Stephen Blair, who was an openly gay man, as its vice president. He earned top wages waiting tables on luxury liners until he was blacklisted in the 50s. And the uh, the NUMCS was communist-led, fiery, and anti-segregation in a time when Jim Crow was the norm. Many leaders, like Blair, were openly gay, and a majority of its members were queer, African-American, revolutionaries, or communists, or... You know, all three. And delegates held, meeting abroad, me- held meetings abroad ships. Uh, the organization was derided as red, so communist, socialist, black, desegregated, and queer. Frank McCormick, Blair's partner, was an officer and on the executive board of the California Congress of Industrial Organizations, so CIO, which is an exor- organization we're going to see a lot. And he was instrumental during the 1934 West Coast Longshoremen's Strike, which led to the unionization of every port on the West Coast. Blair said about this time that, quote, our struggle for freedom was expensive, but worth it. Right. And that brings us to our words of the week, which which are red baiting, race baiting, queer baiting, and dyke baiting. And this (laughs) instant... Yay! <laughs> baiting is always a great word when we're talking about stuff like that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so as we said, words of the week involve baiting. That's right. Another definition of queer baiting for you all to remember. Mm-hmm. And no, it's not the same as what we use in media criticism. So <laughs> this is something different. More complexity. <laughs> Yay! Yeah. So why don't, you, why don't you give us a little rundown, Gretchen? Right. So... Red race and queer baiting. That's what I'm going to talk about because it specifically because it revolves. It's very much connected to the NUMCS. Now, in the 30s and 40s, labor movements like the NUMCS, queer, red, and race baiting referred to harassment and persecution based on suspected communist, racial, or LGBT sympathies. It was often used to discredit someone or to destroy their reputation. Sometimes it was used to cause division by accusing folks who did not fall into those categories uh, in order to get them to turn on their fellow union members. So think of how current political parties try to cause division between blue-collar workers by creating an artificial divide or hierarchy based on race. So the idea of, like, we as white people believe these things Mm -hmm. where, like, to divide, like, blue-collar people who would consider themselves white from people who are non-white. This is the same idea was, hey, I see you hanging out with people who are communist sympathizers. Therefore, you must be a communist sympathizer. And in order to prove you're not, you should turn on them. That's kind of the idea. And um, this is actually, side note, the origin of the idea of white as a racial concept actually comes from this idea of like race baiting. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so NUMCS had a sign in their meeting hall that read, red baiting, race baiting, and queer baiting is anti-union. And at its height was known for black gay militant leadership like Revels Clayton, who was a black gay leader in the organization who said, quote, if you let them red bait, they'll race bait. If you let them race bait, they'll queer bait. That's why we have to stick together. Solidarity. I know. (laughs) Revels Clayton is someone else I also want to come back to because he has a really, really interesting story. So apparently, (laughs) I love this. 
this is what I love when I was reading about the NUMCS, was that apparently there were so many gay men in this organization that even the straight stewards knew that queer baiting was a tactic used by anti-labor folks and didn't fall for it. Mm-hmm. Like, imagine a union in the 30s and 40s being so gay that even the straight members are like, yeah, sure, call me gay. Well, like, most everyone here is gay anyway. It's fine. I don't care. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that that brings us to kind of the the next incarnation of these things and another iteration of baiting called dyke baiting. So these baiting terms and activities weren't limited to the 1930s and 1940s. We even see an extension of it into the 70s and 80s with specifically tradeswomen being quote dyke baited. So, you know, we're going to step out of the timeline a little bit, jump forward to the the 70s and 80s. So dyke baiting was Along the same lines, a form of hazing that came from men specifically in construction trades being threatened by female workers and like their traditional masculine qualities and their transgressions of traditional gender roles, right? So a lot of women in construction fields, you know, were tending to have more kind of masculine qualities. They were leaning towards and looking for more non-traditional work. And this was a big threat. So Miriam Frank in her book, features an interview with a female carpenter who observed that, quote, almost every tradeswoman at one time or another is dyke-baited by co-workers or other people in her life. And Francine Macchio, an anthropologist who studied female electricians, notes that, quote, even today, dyke-baiting is endemic. Characteristics that can mark a woman as lesbian are assurance, assertiveness, physical strength. But she says any woman could be a target. You could be the most feminine woman on the job, but if they don't like you, the men will say you're gay. There is a constant discussion about which women are gay and which are straight. Dyke-baiting pressures straight women to prove themselves as, quote, real women, and it pressures gay women to hide in the closet. So this dyke-baiting, much like the race-baiting and the red-baiting and the queer-baiting, was trying to threaten solidarity, right? It was trying to threaten solidarity in the workplace and create divisiveness between straight and lesbian women, even inside the tradeswomen's support networks. So Connie Ashbrook, who was a union worker who had done a whole bunch of different things. She was a bus driver, a truck driver, a carpenter. She said that some lesbians feared that their straight female co-workers might try to deflect men's antagonism by exposing them as the, quote, real lesbians, and that at the tradeswomen's network, we weren't that out to the straight women except the ones we knew were safe. Hmm. However, on the other side, much like in the NUMCS with this, you know, like the straight people knowing that it was a tactic used to kind of sow discontent in labor circles, there were some acts of solidarity. Irene Soloway, who's a carpenter in New York City, mentioned that some of the straight women apprenticing with her in the 80s, quote, would not admit to not being lesbians. They didn't want to have to prove themselves as straight. They just wouldn't say what they were. Good job, ladies. Yeah. Good job. Good job. So yeah, so I mean, like, all the way back from the 30s to the 80s to, I'm sure, is in many circles still going on now. So there you go. Baiting. Yep. I mean, it's that accusation that we saw when, again, when we talked with Dan about the idea that being a lesbian is just being a woman who doesn't conform to traditional, Mm -hmm. you know, gender norms. Exactly. And that was, you know, way back during the, you know, the modernist period of, you know, literature that that was one of the ways that society used the term lesbian was just like, oh, you're assertive. You like to wear pants, <laughs> you're a lesbian. I mean, and I see that still. Yeah. You see people being like, oh, like you're, you are, you know, gender non-conforming or you don't present in a way that's stereotypically feminine. You must be a lesbian, even if people aren't. You have short hair. You must be a lesbian. 
Right. Yeah. It's one of those accusations that gets thrown around. It's just that in this particular context, it was people were throwing it around partially to like specifically to decrease solidarity Mm -hmm. among women rather than just because they were assholes. I mean, they were assholes, but they were also had a larger purpose. (laughs) (laughs) A larger purpose of fragile masculinity. Uh, Anyway, back to the timeline. (laughs) Back to the timeline. We're in the 50s now. Oh, boy. The most fun time. (laughs) Okay, so yeah, the McCarthy witch hunts, surprise, surprise, the McCarthy witch witch hunts of the 50s destroyed the NUMCS, and the leaders were either imprisoned or blacklisted. CIO, which was an organization that we had mentioned, actually expelled the NUMCS from its, you know, affiliates, and as well as eight other unions who were Mm LGBT-leaning. Still, we do have some light in this tunnel. We have Harry Hay who was a longshoreman from the Bay Area, California. Mm-hmm. Shout out. <laughs> and he founded one of the earliest gay political organizations in 1950, which is the Mattachine Society, which is, again, another thing that we will likely come back to in a future episode. Yeah, we've dropped him, a, dropped him down a little bit. We've, you know, we've mentioned the Mattachine Society, but we're going to go a whole bunch into it later. Yep. And he had met his co-founders at the Southern California Labor School and used the skills that he had learned as a labor union organizer to get the society on the map, the Mattachine Society on the map. And eventually, uh, red baiting and anti-gay sentiments caught up with him and he was expelled from the very group that he had launched, uh, unfortunately. We also have the AFL-CIO, which was formed in 1955 by joining the American Federation of Labor and the Congress of Industrial Organizations, who had long been estranged. However, the AFL-CIO would not actually align itself with LGBT interests until the late 70s or have an official queer labor union affiliate until the 90s. We just bring it up here because this is when this labor organization was founded, and it eventually does come to align itself with queer interests. Mm-hmm. So this, which brings us to the sixties. <laughs> yeah, so the sixties. Uh, so McCarthyism finally on the decline, yay! And the civil rights movement on the rise, yay! So Woo! we're gonna be having a whole episode on this fine gentleman uh, sometime in the future. But Bayard Rustin, who was a black gay radical, he was a key organizer of the March on Washington in 1963, which was the monumental civil rights event backed by labor unions. Um, he was essentially in many, many different ways uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s like right-hand man. And a lot yep. of people don't know about him. He's really kind of relegated to the, you know... Mm-hmm. dusty books of history when talking about the civil rights movement and he unfortunately wasn't able to lead the march due to a congressman and a senator creating controversy over his being both radical and gay so they did a whole kind of anti-queer smear campaign against him but martin luther king jr and a philip randolph who was the president of the brotherhood of sleeping car porters and he was also rustin's mentor they made sure that he continued to play a pivotal role behind the scenes so we're mm-hmm. going to be really excited to get into bayard rustin at some point because he is one of the most influential people behind the civil rights movement in the 60s and he has been really really forgotten in the narrative deliberately right. erased huh yeah Yeah, gee, gee, how surprising is it that, like, the revolutionary gay man is the one that no one talks about? Yeah. Yeah. We also have, in 1965, a lesbian named Judy Mage led 8,000 employees of NYC's Department of Welfare as they walk off their jobs for a strike that lasted 28 days. And this was initiated by the Independent Social Service Employees Union with the AFSCME Local 371. And them striking was in defiance of state law. 
And so Mage and 18 other union leaders were arrested, jailed, and released. And then once they were released, negotiations resumed and they succeeded with new grounds, you know, breaking new grounds on wages, reductions in caseloads, and defined union rights for all municipal workers. So, yay, Mm. more things being led by lesbians. And then we have in 69, a man named Bill Olwell, who was a closeted gay man, uh, stood for re-election as president of the retail clerk's local 1001 in Seattle. And he, you know, had support, but again, his detractors find an opponent to run against him, and they financed a queer-baiting smear campaign. Seems to be a nice, fun trend. Mm. But he defeats the opponent and is easily reelected, and from that moment on, he is out of the closet. And Good his job, like, gayness Bill. becomes a huge, pivotal part of his union organizing from then on, which is pretty cool. Cool. We got a couple of badass bills this episode. Yeah, right? <laughs> but yeah, if you want to if you want to listen read more about Bill, Frank goes into his stuff a lot. There's some really cool stories with him. Right. So, the 70s. There's a lot in the 70s. Yeah. This is kind of really where things start to really really come together and we see a lot happening, which makes sense because this is kind of the height of the civil rights movement. This is the beginning of the LGBT civil rights movement. A lot of so, anti-establishmentism. Yeah. A lot yes. of anti-establishment thoughts too. Like you have the rise of real real propagation of hippie culture too and Right, because, I mean, you have the Vietnam mm-hmm. War protests, and there's, a yeah, a lot of anti-establishment thinking going on. And those things just kind of all seem to naturally fall together. So in the 70s, you have some people are starting to come out of the closet, but homophobia is still keeping many of the LGBT unionizers in the closet. In order to continue their work, for example, you have Teresa Rankin, who organized textile workers at J.P. Stevens in North Carolina, but kept her sexual orientation a secret, fearing backlash, and actually relied on the lesbian scene in Washington, D.C. for community. So you have a lot. There are many more stories like these where, you know, not everyone can be Bill. And even Bill was in the closet. Bill Owell, who we just talked about, was in the closet for a while, where you see examples of in order to further labor concerns, many queer folk would stay in the closet because they believed that their fight for unionizing was was important enough mm-hmm. that that if they were to out themselves and be kicked out of the movement that you know things would stall. Yeah. There were though some pockets of like like certain areas of work were, you know, especially in the 70s were kind of pockets where queer workers could be a little bit more out. And this was kind of my favorite thing from this time period. One of these things that was a I guess not really a surprise but a delight not surprising but a delightful surprise for me was bus driving. Mm. So Shelley Kreitz says that it was quote a traditional lesbian workplace. And so public mm. transportation had many opportunities for mechanically competent women. So in the early 70s, this was like a boom time for bus jobs and many lesbians joined up because they were seeking non-traditional work. So in Boston, the school bus drivers organized in 1977 with three lesbians at the head of the organizing committee, and they wanted a union that would be open to a variety of workers. They approached the and got a friendly response from the United Steelworkers of America Union and said that, quote, they could deal with us being leftists and militant and gay. And the casual environment of the bus yards made it so that coming out on the job was easier than other work environments. As Susan Moore, a Boston bus driver, said, We were in bulldagger jobs. It never occurred to me to actually tell someone. A job like that, managing large machines, that attracts dykes. Another woman, Shelley Edinger, in Ann Arbor, tells the best story. 
This is so good. Uh, She says, It was a very gay place to work. There was graffiti in the women's bathroom in the workers' lounge. It said, quote, Oh, how I love driving the big bus when you feel the motor throbbing against your clitoris on the seat. (laughs) (laughs) I had to go to the best. (laughs) This is the best interview. Um, So, yeah, so there was occasional dyke baiting, as to be expected, uh, in any place where there was going to be, you know, men involved as well. But the targets took it in stride, and they they had their coworkers for support. Moore says that she once saw a note on the bulletin board that said, Lezzie's work here. And when everybody kind of looked to her to see what her reaction was going to be, she said, hey, somebody left me a note, and folded it up and put it in her pocket, and everybody laughed. Oh my gosh, I love her. So, yeah, so while we have this kind of larger refrain of people are starting to come out in little pockets, but a lot of times they're still in the closet and are finding different ways to advocate for themselves within union work, there were still pockets of industries where things were a little bit easier. Right. In 1970, the American Federation of Teachers was one of the first unions to work on resolutions to help LGBT workers. The executive council of the AFT approved a resolution to, quote, protest any personal actions against any teacher solely because he or she practices homosexual behavior in private Mm -hmm. life. Which is awesome because I feel like there have been stories recently about people who have been punished (sighs) for this. And it just feels like a huge, it's simultaneously one of those like, Oh, wow. It's nice that that was that they had protections, but also like, why did we have to take a giant step backwards? Yeah. Come on, guys. But yeah, still others during the 70s drew on their interest in LGBT rights and workers' rights to found gay labor organizations. So this is kind of the 70s is where we actually start to see labor organizations that are specifically queer rather than just like queer folk who are in or leading labor organizations. These are labor organizations that are specifically for queer folk. In 1974, you have Howard Wallace, who campaigned for the boycott of notoriously right-wing Coors Beer in San Francisco because of its racist employment practices and anti-gay and anti-unionist policies, like the implementation of a pre-employment lie detector test, with one of the questions being if the person was gay. And I uh, I feel like Marsden would be offended yeah, yeah. by that. So anyway, this practice led to the, or this uh, boycott led to the founding of the Lesbian and Gay Labor Alliance of San Francisco. And the boycott actually like started in 67 um, and was led by Chicano community activists who patterned their strategy after the great boycott supporting the United Farm Workers Union Drive. And when the gay community in San Francisco joined in the 70s, it upped the ante and continued for the next 14 years. Mm-hmm. And um, Alan Baird, the member in the man in charge of running the boycott from the local beer truck drivers union, remarked, quote, the gay campaign just steamrolled. And I started telling people once the gay community locks onto something, they can stop any product they want. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this was like one so- of the first big, big, significant collaborations mm-hmm. between the gay community and the labor movement. This is like marked as like a significant turning point. Right. Yeah. And like it began as like this local boycott in mm-hmm. San Francisco that like it became a national boycott and reduced the market share of course from 40, 40 percent to 14 percent just yeah. because of this boycott. So you can understand why Alan Baird said what he said, because it was a huge, a huge impact on the market share. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, the boycott even uh, involved Harvey Milk, who agreed to publicize the boycott in the gay press and got a pledge from Coors from the Tavern Guild, which was a citywide association of 100 gay bars in San Francisco. Right. And like, as we said, this was, you know, a national movement in Seattle. The Freedom Socialist Party, Radical Women, and Teamsters all actually worked together on the same boycott committee against Coors. And it's interesting because a couple of years later, we see in 1978 that an anti-gay initiative actually made it onto Seattle's ballot. And to oppose the measures, the Teamster, like Joint Council 28, like filed a suit and the initiative was defeated. So we see that just one of those ways of showing that, you know, working together on this boycott for, for Coors early on, actually then once, you know, they kind of played uh, turnabout is fair play, where you have the queer folk went to bat for the union workers and mm-hmm. cores. And then as a response, you know, years later, when an anti-gay initiative was being proposed, then you have the Teamsters and Radical Women saying like, oh, no, 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 you don't get to do that. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. We're going to oppose like a, that anti-gay measure. <laughs> it's a happy quid pro quo. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. The Coors boycott actually then, I mean, speaking of ties, the Coors boycott led to ties between the labor and gay rights movements in San Francisco, which was actually what helped get Harvey Milk elected in the first place to San Francisco supervisor. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, without all of that working together, we wouldn't have had Harvey Milk. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so continuing on on this thread, you know, that was going on in the 1970s, right? So we're talking about why so many people were not out mm-hmm. in their workplace at the time, right? So you have to rem- remember that at this time, being out, like we showed with the queer baiting and the dyke baiting, would make you a target. Whether or not a worker or organizer would out themselves in their union work depended on a variety of factors, including expected support from the union, workplace culture, and geographic location. Not being, quote, out and proud in labor unions was, for many, an act of both personal safety and public activism, as it allowed them to continue the work they were doing for labor unions, which encompassed rights for other LGBT workers like themselves and their fellow workers who were not LGBT. So it was like, you can be doing this labor work, which will benefit you, but it may not be the most safe place and time right now to be doing it as an LGBT cause, if that makes sense. Right. And that's something that I think is important to think about because we're so used to thinking of, I think, thinking of being out and proud as being somehow more authentic or honest. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's not to say that that perspective is wrong, but that there are other ways of looking at things. Sometimes people, I mean, to put it another way, would for what they considered personally to be the greater good, not just for themselves, but to other people who are like them in their community and to workers who might not be queer, but would benefit from the work that they were doing would say, look, that takes priority. That work mm-hmm. that the work that I'm doing takes priority over me being out. And that's something that I think as the queer community is important to remember and recognize because especially there are people for whom that is still true because not everyone even in in western american society even nowadays is safe being out. And there are places in the world in which it is entirely unsafe and oh, yeah. very unsafe to be out. So I do just think it's important as we look at history to remember that being out is in some sense a privilege. And -hmm. I think that that's something we can appreciate without Mm -hmm. saying that not being out somehow makes someone inauthentic or even shamed, that they feel ashamed of their identity. It's not all it doesn't mm-hmm. it's not always rooted in that. So anyway, I'm going to get off my soapbox and we can get back to talking <laughs> <laughs> talking about 
um, <laughs> queer labor unions, such as the American yeah. Guild of Music Artists, which actually represented artists, which they represented artists in opera, chorus, and dance. And they amended their constitution to protect gay rights during the 70s. And it's, it should come to no surprise to anybody that, you know, opera and music theater and these things are gay. And so they were some of the first people to be like, you know, kind of like that NUMCS was like, oh, hey, most of our people are queer. Maybe we should protect them. Um, Gays in the arts? It's more likely than you think. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. (laughs) So, yeah, they were one of the first to actually amend their union constitution to protect Mm -hmm. gay rights. Yeah. I really liked this story. In in 1975, you have a trans woman named Joni Christian who was an assembly line worker. I mean is you know well she was and then she's still alive but so she was an assembly line worker at the general motors plant in lordston ohio and was a member of the united auto workers union local 212 and so in 1975 she she took a leave of absence to transition and she had she had been under you know she had uh estrogen but her like work uniform and you know, the work that she was doing, everybody was, nobody was really paying much attention to it. So she could, you know, kind of pass under the radar. So she left to kind of continue transition and undergo gender confirmation surgery. And when she returned, she dropped her dead name and debuted as Joni. And with that, she's met with hostile co-workers and really aggressively transphobic supervisors. There were some really, really gross, disgusting things that were said to her and about her, which I'm not going to repeat here. If you want to read them, you can read the book. But so she ended up using her union's legal services benefit to sue General Motors for invasion of privacy, and she actually won a settlement, and then after 30 more years working at the plant, retired in 1999 with a pension. So, yeah. And it's, you know, while not every part of, like, working with her union was super easy, the president of the chapter, Gary Briner, really backed her up. He said, quote, we had only started having women working on the line in 1971, and we had to get tough then with how some of the men were acting. So women alone were a scarcity, let alone what Joni was doing. Some of the workers were acting like animals, but there were other brothers who were pretty embarrassed. She was paying dues. She had the right to do whatever she wanted. Good job allying, Gary Bryant. Right, how to good, be a good, good job. ally. Good job. That's right. She was paying dues. She could do whatever the fuck she wanted. <laughs> <laughs> you go, Joni Christensen. Uh, Christian. I don't know why I keep wanting to say Christensen. I don't know. <laughs> In 1978, labor and LGBTQ groups banded together to defeat the Briggs Initiative, or Prop 6, in California that sought to ban gay folks from teaching in public schools. Now, yeah, this was a big yeah. one. Prop 6 wasn't Ugh. the first amendment to come about punishing teachers and workers for, quote, homosexual activity. But what was new in it was the broad topic of public homosexual conduct, which meant that it would punish not only queer school employees for public or private declarations of their sexuality, it would penalize any school worker, gay or straight, for aiming affirming the existence of gay people. Um, yeah. Yeah. So this was all this was all like backed by we'll talk about this when we a little bit more when we talk about like Harvey Milk in detail, but this was a this all came out of like an initiative by a woman named Anita Bryant and her Save Our Children campaign, yeah. which made some really gross accusations about gay men and gay teachers uh, towards school children, right. which was gross. So this is kind of where this proposition kind of came up out of. Right. Yeah, totally. Now, uh, many people took Prop 6 as a personal threat, which they should have. Peter Tenney, who was a gay cook in San Francisco's H-E-R-E, which is hotel employees and restaurant employees, local number two, said, 
Briggs was both a terror and an opportunity. This began as a grassroots campaign, knocking on doors and introducing themselves as gays and explaining to neighbors, neighborhood residents how Briggs would affect their lives and the civil li liberties of all Californians. When Prop 6 was still ahead, anti-Briggs activists changed tactics, positing that the amendment would be too expensive and difficult to enact, which was an argument that would appeal more to the values of conservatives who tend to be more on the, you know, fiscally conservative side as well. Mm -hmm. And that ended up being rejected by 58% of voters. And, mm -hmm. you know, we bring this up because it was, again, like a joint activity between labor unions and LGBT groups. Because this was affecting teachers, you have, you know, not just specifically queer folks, but labor unions are saying like, no, you don't get to treat people like that. You can't do that. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, good job. Woohoo. Uh, and in 1979, we are back to the AFL-CIO. And they are the largest federation of labor unions in the United States. And finally, in 1979, they made their first call for a federal law banning discrimination based on orientation. So it, it took us a really long time to get there, but it started in 79. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We still, we still don't have, quite have it. <sighs> no, we're, we're still we'll fighting a good more. fight, folks. It's yeah. been uh, almost 40 years. Almost 40 uh. years, guys. Um, but it it's all started been 84 years. I know. <laughs> Someone put that, we need that gift. But yeah, and it started with labor unions. So a fight that mm -hmm. we're still having now began as a proposition from a labor union. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so uh, in we walk into the 1980s, which was a monumental shift in the queer community with the onset of AIDS. Yep. So the AIDS crisis really brought forth new crises and collaborations. So you had California nurses demanding dignity for HIV patients, queer workers unionized AIDS clinics and fought at work and in the labor movement against discrimination against people with HIV and AIDS. The AIDS committee of the SEIU Local 250 Union, for ho which is the um, union for hospital workers, mm -hmm. so it's like service employees, and this was the union in SF, they actually published a brochure called AIDS and the Healthcare Worker, and they developed AIDS training for hospital and healthcare workers throughout the Bay Area, and then they continued to distribute the booklet and its Spanish translations nationally. So they were really at the forefront. I mean, like, n the, th the thing you have to understand is that during the AIDS crisis, no one outside of our community was talking about it. Nope. It was thoroughly shut down. Ronald Reagan would not even say the word AIDS. And so to have there being people who were not in the queer community who were backing us and who were spreading awareness and education was really monumental. And it mm -hmm. was a lot of hospital workers and caretakers who were seeing the effects of a virus that was decimating an entire community. So yeah, right. that was that was huge. Right. And on a, on a side note, what we see in the AIDS crisis, what you were just mentioning, actually, we'll probably get into this further down the line, but it actually, I mean, it totally transforms the way that LGBT rights talked about itself and even the way mm. that queer folk conceptualize themselves. This is really the root of the modern notion of queer identity mm -hmm. rather than it being a choice and really a huge part of that shift in thinking was the stories of personal pain and suffering that came out of the AIDS crisis. My my partner, his master's thesis topic was actually on the rhetoric, on the rhetoric of AIDS and the stories of personal pain and suffering that went along with this movement and just how transformative that were in terms of the way that queer civil rights talked about itself and then communicated its identity to the world. So it really is such a 
landslide event for so many reasons. And I mean, as you said, no one else was talking about it. It was no one else was willing to even acknowledge that it was a problem for the most part if they weren't within the queer community. So the fact that that people who were involved in the service industry and caretakers who were not queer were willing to say, look, no, we have to talk about this. This is really important. And we have to treat these people with dignity and not talk about like gay cancer or all of the other horrible things that were said about the men and women who are dying from AIDS was is so important, so important. Mm-hmm. And I know that we will do an episode eventually on on AIDS and, you know, what that's meant because it, I mean, we can't talk about modern experience of the queer community without it. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, mm-hmm. not yeah. not all of the 80s was focused around the AIDS crisis. As huge as that was, that was not, not everything was about that. Much of this decade also focused on, there was a shift to like anti-discrimination clauses in contract negotiations and labor unions. Starting in the 70s and continuing in the 80s, back to bus drivers. Yay! (laughs) Uh, So lesbian bus drivers in Ann Arbor, Michigan fused gay affirmation with labor insurgency. I love that idea. Labor insurgency. So good. Like (laughs) gay affirmation and labor insurgency. According to Miriam Frank, this was something that they did. Members of the... uh, AFCME, which, as we said, was the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees, Local Chapter 693, actually brought a proposal for workers and management to co-manage the bus company, which was a radical proposal back then and even is now in many places to go to your employers and be like, hey, we work here. We should also be managing this place. Yeah. So they fought for the inclusion of sexual preference to be a part of the non-discrimination clause, which passed uncontested. Good job, Ann Armour. And this made AF or AFSME. How did you say AFSME? AFSME. AFSME. AFSME Local 693 was one of the first locals to include gay rights in contract negotiations. Mm -hmm. And then AFSME passed a gay rights resolution in 1982, the Civil Rights for Gay and Lesbian Citizens. And the AFL-CIO passed their own in 1983. Mm-hmm. Yep. In 1982, the staff at the Village Voice magazine, which is a, a magazine in New York City, negotiated a contract extension or negotiated an extension of their health plan to, quote, spouse equivalents. And under the new contract, the arrangement uh, ended up being formalized as what was the first domestic partner benefits, which just started to create a whole rolling effect. Right. Can I can I petition to to start using the term spouse equivalent? <laughs> I like it. <laughs> this is my spouse equivalent. <laughs> Which is funny because like, you know, like spouse is a gender neutral term and so I think of it as like spouse equivalent. Like what is an equivalent of a spouse? But it's really just talking about the fact that like we had no legal equivalent of a married spouse. <laughs> right? Right. Was like Someone who is not legally a spouse, but is for is all other for all other for intents, all and intents and purposes. And purposes. <laughs> yeah, we've been doing this so long. We're talking at the same time. Eventually, this <laughs> yeah. is eventually this is just going to be like one voice, just like one voice of like Lee and I talking at the exact same time the whole time. So we're just going to become a homunculus. <sighs> yeah, a homunculus. <laughs> but um. <laughs> Eventually, we're going to finish each other's... Sandwiches. Oh, anyway. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah, uh, moving moving away a little bit from the United States, we had in 1984 uh, through 1985, there were British coal miners that went on strike and LGBT folks formed an alliance to support them. The lesbians and gays support miners and raised a the basically what is the modern equivalent of $44,000 to assist, which is pretty yeah. cool. Good job. Good job. Uh, in the 1980s, a trans worker in an industrial laundry shop faced harassment after gender confirmation surgery. Oh, this is what we already talked about. No, this is different. Oh, because that was in that was in like sixty seven oh. or something. Oh, ooh, this is or a, in seventies. Ooh, eerie. It's almost the exact same story that I was like, wait. It was funny when you were talking about Joni. I was like, I feel like I've heard this story before. Well, when you when you put this in the outline, I was like, wait a minute, did I? But but no, it's a different one. Right. So we both had the same thought of being like, this sounds exactly the same. Anyway. Yeah. Why we're both so confused and feels like the Twilight Zone (laughs) is that in 1980, a trans worker at an industrial laundry shop faced harassment after gender confirmation surgery. When they went to their union rep, the rep actually resolved the issue and subsequently negotiated for trans protections into the amalgamated clothing and textile workers contract. Again, good ally. Good job, Mm -hmm. union rep. Yeah. In 1987, you get the National March on Washington for Lesbian and Gay Rights in October, and that actually included a contingent of gay labor activists carrying a banner that said Pride at Work. And the day before, AFL-CIO sponsored an official reception to welcome the LGBT union members to its headquarters. And again, uh, reinforcing that bond between Chicano activists, Cesar Chavez actually told the Assembly of People in the Union Contingents, quote, we supported lesbian and gay rights when it was just a crowd of 10 people. Mm. As Frank mentions, he, quote, vowed loyalty to the gay cause and reminded marchers to hold true to the boycott of table grapes. He concluded with a round of the United Farm Workers chant, Viva la Huelga, Viva la Causa. Mm. So I just, I love that. I, I love that. Just yep. super solidarity. Right. I love how, I mean, intersectional we see a lot of this being. Was that mm-hmm. it really was about labor rights just intersected so much with, with queer rights, with women's rights, with, you know, the rights of those who are marginalized because of race, with people of color. Like, mm. all of these for so long have been working together hand in hand. And it's really, really, really cool to see. I think especially because we live in a time period where it feels like everyone's fighting each other. Maybe it's yeah. just me. But I like feel like I go social media, read the news, and I'm like, everybody stop fighting. Come on, guys. Come that on. it's nice to be reading a history that's just like, right, people have been fighting together and supporting each other. People of different marginalizations coming together to work together towards a better society. And that makes me hopeful. Yay! Yay! Yeah. And that brings us to the 90s. In the 1990s, LGBT caucuses increased and formalized more ties with labor and trade unions. And in the 90s, it really showcases an increased acceptance of and solidarity with queer folk within the labor movement, organizing reinforced cooperation and continuity with kind of what had gone before. This is, things are solidifying. So yeah, mm-hmm. do you want to tell us about Gallon? Yes. So a network in Boston called Gallon, which stood for Gay and Lesbian Labor Activist Network, was actually one of the longest running, like the, the longest lived of the citywide queer labor coalitions. And it started kind of quietly in the 1980s. They had like potluck suppers for lesbian trade unionists where they would just sit and 
talk. But then it grew in the 1990s into kind of a more formal thing. They would set up fundraisers and support other unionist causes. They actually organized a fundraiser called Allies for the 90s, United for Health, to benefit two different organizations, one labor and one gay. The labor half of the proceeds focused on the United Farm Workers, and Cesar Chavez actually gave a keynote speech. And then the gay half of the proceeds went to a new building for Boston's Fenway Health Center, which was a full-service agency for the gay community. Nice. And my favorite of their actions is this story. This is, again, this is going to be the second story where I say a certain word. So they frequently played an influential role in opposing Republican campaigns, one of which was William F. Weld, who was the governor of Massachusetts at the time. And he refused to, he, like, in general was saying that he was supporting gay marriage, but he had a lot of other issues, um, like he was refusing to grant partner benefits to unionized workforces, and he had plans to curtail government agencies that served people with AIDS. So he had like some mouthpiece things that were like, yay, but if you really looked into his policies, they were no bueno. So Gallen actually set up a get out the vote drive in 1990 that was aimed at question three, which was a referendum on cuts in social services. It had been put on the ballot by a group called Citizens for Limited Taxation, and Weld supported the measure. So (laughs) Ed Hunt and union activists with Gallen took their truth squad, nicknamed, so remember, right, this, this, uh, group that set it up was Citizens for Limited Taxation. So Gallen uh, named their truth squad Lick Clit, <laughs> C-L-I-T, Citizens for Limited Taxation. Uh, they basically took their squad to gay neighborhoods and, quote, put the word out that this would hit AIDS services and everything else that got state funding. And we talked about how it would hurt gay and lesbian workers. And we killed it. It was voted down by 70%. We licked that clit. <laughs> It's so good. That's so good. Oh, that is so good. We licked that clip. The, the two stories I add to our outline about clitorises. I really, really hope at some point that someone at the time period had a button that just said like we licked that like clip. that clip. I just hope. I I would not be surprised because yeah, it's right. it's great because like it it actually looks like like capital L capital uh, capital C capital L little I capital T right. It's great. Oh man, it's delightful. We'll try and find a we'll mm-hmm. try and see if we can find any like posters or promotional items for that to put mm-hmm. in our show notes. So yeah. in 1993, a thousand members of the SEIU met at local 250s Union Hall in Oakland and founded SEIU's Western Conference Lavender Caucus. And hey. so yeah, we have that organization. And then that brings us to Pride at Work, which is great that you were just talking about Gallon. Because Mm -hmm. Pride at Work, it's an LGBT labor organization focused on working with organized labor and the LGBT community to support social and economic justice. They offer training and model contract language on family policy, health insurance, and principles of non-discrimination. Currently, so they're they're still running, currently they are working on initiatives like the Campaign for a Federal Employment Non-Discrimination Act. Now, in June 1994, labor union activists gathered as part of the 25th anniversary of the Stonewall Riots. Howard Wallace and the other members of Gallen pushed for the creation of a national organization because Gallen was local in Boston. Howard was pushing for a national organization out of frustration with the labor movement silence on the Defense of Marriage Act, which was going on at this time. So the name comes from the 1990 booklet entitled Pride at Work, Organizing for Lesbian and Gay Rights and Unions, and originally was published, which was originally published in 1990 by the Lesbian 
gay labor network. So we had a we had a lot of these pockets everywhere. It was time to squish them all together. Yeah, time to yeah yeah. <laughs> as we were saying, it was time to not just have local chapters of things or local movements, but time to really affiliate and create national mm-hmm. movements. And they actually affiliated with the AFL CIO in '97 as an official constituency organization, despite arguments from some AFL CIO council members that the group was too small to affiliate. Read probably there's homophobia involved in that. And it wasn't actually given a budget to fund operations until two years later in 99. But it did join the Federation among five other constituency organizations, the Asian Pacific American Labor Alliance, the Labor Council for Latin American Advancement, CLUW, the A. Philip Randolph Institute, and the Coalition of Black Trade Unionists. So as we're seeing, you have these persons of color organizations being, you know, again, right alongside LGBT being kind of brought into the bigger umbrella organizations right around the same time. Pride mm-hmm. at Work's national influence was only made possible because of the rank-and-file organizers developing strong local chapters. Miriam Frank, in her book, notes, quote, In the toughest of times, it is the work of the locals that steadily maintains the life of the movement. I love that. It's- Voting in your local elections. Yes. Please. <laughs> yeah. I yeah. Tuesday was, was election day here in Wisconsin, and I absolutely voted. Woo! Woo-woo. Vote, people. Vote, people. If you yeah. get absolutely nothing else out of this podcast, which we certainly hope you get other things out of this podcast, but if you get absolutely nothing else out of the, this podcast, it is literally vote at every chance you possibly can. Please go vote. Please. Please. Please go vote. That's how we change things. Vote, vote, vote all the time. It really doesn't mm-hmm. take very long. It takes like a couple of minutes. Please yeah. do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, we should probably get back, <laughs> get back to our yeah. regularly scheduled lot of, programming. Lot of soapboxes this episode. It's okay. This is an activism episode. We can soapbox. Yes. <laughs> so yeah, we have the Transgender Caucus, which was founded by Donna Cartwright and Gabriel Holland, which focused on transgender rights in healthcare. In 2008. So Donna Cartwright, actually, the reason why she's put in the 90s is because she came out as transgender in the 1990s and announced her transition in 98. And I love this story. She put a letter like on the bulletin boards and in her co-workers mailboxes. But she was and she was really afraid of backlash, but instead just got this like overwhelming outpouring of support. And actually credits that response, at least in part to like the 20 years of activism that she had in her union, local three of the newspaper guild. So she had been fighting for the rights of her fellow workers for so long. And then when she transitioned, they were like, we love you. Yay. We good for you. you. Which I just think is. Oh, that's that's so beautiful. <sighs> good for them. Good oh. for them. Yeah. So as the fight for marriage equality kind of came more to the forefront in the 1990s, both explicitly queer and non-queer, you know, unions start to focus on domestic partner benefits. Um, And so one of the biggest things that happened kind of near the end of this decade was that in 1999, the Chrysler Corporation agrees to the UAWs, which is United Auto Workers, proposal for a feasibility study on domestic partner benefits and like the big three of the, you know, automobile corporations, Mm -hmm. Chrysler, Ford and General Motors ended up joining the deal. Good job, guys. Right. Yeah. Um, And that brings us to the 2000s, where really one of the big shifts kind of in foci, other than, you know, the fight for marriage equality, was transgender healthcare. Things like in 2004, Andre Wilson leads the fight for trans-inclusive healthcare in the contract negotiations between the Graduate Employee Organization and the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Um, You have things like New York janitors standing up for healthcare equality. This is a time when, as trans folk started to feel safer coming out, we started to see a greater advocation for 
right, they also need to be included in healthcare. And one of the ways that we can make that happen is through unions. Mm-hmm. Labor unions donated millions of dollars to help campaigns for marriage equality, um, such as the effort to defeat Prop 8 in California in 2008. So, yeah. Yeah. Ugh, Prop 8. That was Ugh. a time. I know Ugh. it was a time. Um, yeah, that was that was not fun to be in California. Nope. So, yeah, this brings us kind of to the present, the the 20, 20 teens, so current collaborations. Alongside a continued focus on transgender healthcare, we have kind of a more pointed conversation and activism around marriage equality. In 2012, Joe Hansen, the president of the United Food and Commercial Workers International Union, spoke up in support of marriage equality, calling it, quote, an economic justice issue and a social justice issue, and that makes it a union mm. issue. AFL-CIO and the Service Employees International Union, so SEIU, issued similar statements. Mm -hmm. And then the 2015 Supreme Court decision to legalize same-gender marriage affected workers who wanted to marry and made space for the ability to buy employer-provided health care for spouses. Right. right. There are some really cool stuff that's actually going on right now that as I was doing research, I, you know, I stumbled across. One of them being like, (laughs) I just love the name of it. That was why I included it. It was called Sleep with the Right People. (laughs) Uh, from Unite here. And it's actually a collaboration between labor unions and the LGBT community that seeks to encourage people to only patronize unionized hotels. Oh my God, that's so good. Uh, That totally sounds like something that John Waters would say. Oh, yeah. 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 That whole, like, his whole uh, story about if you you take somebody on a date and they offer to take you home with them and you go to their house and they don't have any books, don't fuck them. Right. Yeah, I mean, that's sleep, with the, right sleep with the right people. <laughs> <laughs> However, one thing that we have noticed, which transitions into our takeaway sections, is that in, you know, the last decade or so, focus on workers' rights has, you know, kind of diminished in recent rhetoric from the LGBT rights movement, including the human rights campaign. The mainstream narrative about marriage equality really didn't do a whole lot to prop up the importance of the decision of of this decision for working class queer families. When marriage equality happened in 2015, there wasn't really a concerted focus on its effect for working class families. And it and it and mm-hmm. it did greatly impact them, hugely impacted the yeah. labor movement. And yet that wasn't really what people were talking about. Well, I mean, because you have like you have repercussions with it as well. Mm -hmm. You know, you have like, yay, we have marriage equality. I can marry my wife. But now I live in a state where I don't have protection in employment against discrimination. And so then they see that I have, you know, I name my spouse on my benefits Mm -hmm. and then suddenly I can get fired because that's disclosure of my sexual orientation. And so marriage equality didn't didn't stop the conversation. It hasn't stopped the work that we need to do. And in some ways can even contribute to really highlighting the other work that needs to be done. Right. So yes. Takeaways. (laughs) What still needs to be done? (laughs) A lot. A lot. (laughs) One of the things that that we noticed while we were writing this outline is that unions, unions, despite where our country may be as a, as a country and in terms of like Supreme Court legal decisions, unions specifically have had anti-discrimination laws for 40 years. 40 years. That's a long time. But in 29 states, a union contract is still the only legal protection that many workers have from discrimination based on sexual orientation. Almost 50%, folks, almost 50% of states, the only legal protection that that a working class queer person would have from discrimination based on their orientation 
is a union contract. Similarly, Mm -hmm. in 33 states, a union contract is the only legal protection for many workers for their gender identity and expression. And Mm -hmm. I mean, there are... There are just reasons why we need, we as queer people need to support unions. Mm-hmm. And not just because they've had our backs, but th- I mean, I'm going to go into some stats here. I got a little stats crazy. Um, so, <laughs> stats, stats, stats. Yeah, stats. So 53% of union workers in state or local businesses have access to domestic partner healthcare benefits compared to 17% of non-unionized workers. So if you're in a union, you are significantly more likely to have access to domestic partner health care benefits. In the private sector, the ratio is 46% have access, 28% don't. So a little bit better, but still, you're significantly more likely to have domestic partner benefits for health care if you are in a union. As a state or local retiree, you're more likely to have same-gender domestic partner benefits if you're unionized versus not. 54% to 47%. And at the same time, trans people still lack many protections, including trans people of color, trans working class people. Trans people are three times more likely than cis people to be union members. They are three times more likely to be unemployed and four times more likely to live in poverty. They need unions because unions are Mm -hmm. the only ways that they get health care, the way that they get domestic partner benefits, the way that they are protected for discrimination. Unions protect people when our state and government doesn't. Like, Yes. Yeah. Yeah. (sighs) Um, And it's, you know, it's not even just about protecting our own within working class communities. Union workers make 30% more than non-union and are 59% more likely to have employer-provided health care. The gender pay gap is considerably lower for women in unions and LGBT folks enjoy greater protections, as we said. Yet the right to work, get paid a living wage, and enjoy the fruits of that labor is being eroded as unions are disbanded or forced to dissolve, leaving those who relied on it for protection, including many queer folk, vulnerable to exploitation. They're our most enduring and long-standing ally in the fight for queer rights, and yet it seems like these days we're not doing our part to help them out after they've supported us. Right. Like, unions benefit not just queer folk. They benefit women. They benefit people of color. They benefit anyone who is marginalized and working class. Mm-hmm. We need them. And they, they need and us. They, they, we, need to, we need to extend the, extend the hand right. back. Like, we need to defend our labor union allies. Like, I have that mm-hmm. in, like, all caps in our outline because we need to. It's, I think, incumbent upon us as those who have been helped by labor unions so significantly in the last hundred years. And also just, I think, to be a good person, like, <laughs> to help them because of, you know, what they've done for us and for how long we've been allies we have been allies for so long and working together for so long. It's not just that they've done things for us, but like in the past, queer communities helped the labor unions, even when it didn't personally benefit them as queer folk, or at mm-hmm. least not specifically personally benefit them as queer folk, like with the Coors boycott or or all of these other things where, where it was like the, the quid pro quo was like, oh, you've helped us, we'll help you because that's fair. Um, and your interests mm-hmm. are our interests. That was why we started this episode with LGBT rights are union rights. They are they're closely allied and have been for a very, very long time. It's not just for the sake of our community, but for the sake of the cis and straight allies that we've worked with for over a century. And doing this research, I'm just like so fired up about the fact that I don't see a lot of specific rhetoric within the community that is specifically concerned with the erosion of 
unions. And I, mm-hmm. I mean, I personally witnessed that living in Madison, Wisconsin when I was in graduate school. When I was in graduate school was when they, uh, our horrible governor was eroding the TA union, the teacher's age union. And all of that was happening while I lived here. That was actually why I started getting political in the first place was because I saw what was happening to all of my friends, you know, the vast majority of whom were straight and just seeing what was happening to their lives and what it meant for them to lose the union made me realize just how important it was to be politically active. So these are my roots with political activism is being worried about labor and unions. And and so to see the queer community like not actively, you know, not being all up in arms for, you know, labor like issues with unions, like we should be fighting for that. We should be talking about it. We should be joining their marches and protesting and acting on, you know, with them and standing by them. And it's just... I have so many strong feelings about this, but I'll stop. (laughs) (laughs) Tell us how you really feel, Gretchen. I don't know. I've been kind of vague. Should be more specific. (sighs) Yeah. So that that brings us to just a tiny little pop culture tie-in. In our research, we discovered information about a cool British film called Pride, which was about London LGBT activists who came to the rescue for Welsh mine workers' families during a strike. Yep. That was something that we, that was one of the stories we brought up earlier. In 84 and 85, the uh, LGBT crowd fighting for the minors. So, yeah, yeah, that was important to bring that up. Cool thing. Yeah. So, so Gretchen, I have a feeling I know what you're going to be thinking about this, Mm. but uh, labor unions, how gay were they? (sighs) Well, they're not entirely gay. Not entirely gay. But they're, but they're like pretty gay. I I think I'd give it an eight out of 10 lesbian bus drivers with uh, vibrating seats. (laughs) (laughs) All right. What about you, Lee? <laughs> um, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna say like a yeah, like a like a seven or an eight around the same. Uh-huh. Uh, let's do like let's do eight uh, licked citizens for limitations on taxation <laughs> is gonna be my uh, my rating for this week. <gasps> awesome. <laughs> uh, by the way, I just have to say I love that we've evolved this section of how gay were they from just numbers. To, like, episode-specific ratings. (laughs) Yes. I love that. I think it's great. I I think it started probably with Claude Cahoon and just wanting to make jabs about surrealism. Yeah, I really think it was because we were like, (laughs) we can't use numbers for this. Or, like, we can't just say, like, 8 out of 10. We've got to talk about, like, surrealism and melting clocks and things. So, yeah. But I love that. I think it's great. Yeah, I'm pleased. I'm pleased with this direction. (laughs) So... So that's that's it. That's what we've got for you for today's episode. As usual, you can find us online individually. Gretchen, where can people locate you upon the World Wide Web? Well, when I am not on a soapbox about queer people helping labor unions, I am writing nerdy media analysis and fangirling over what am I currently doing right now? Probably A Song of Ice and Fire and Steven Universe and Winona Earp for the fundamentals.com and my personal website, gnellis.com. Or you can find me on Tumblr and Twitter as at gnelliswriter. Lee, what about you? When I'm not nerding out about old-timey queer folks or fighting the man, uh, I'm usually talking about comics and queer TV over at A Paradox in Flux on Twitter and editing these episodes a lot. <laughs> uh, this, you know, we... 
We're going to talk about Patreon in a second, but this has become like a like a part-time job for for us, you know, between our editing and our research and we put a lot of love into right. it. Store and all sorts of exciting things. Now we're now we have spreadsheets to talk about budgets, and that sounds like it would be oh, yeah. super boring, but you guys don't understand how exciting it is to think about the fact that like, oh my gosh, we have a budget. We have a budget. We can make it's a budget. Cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we're nerds, if you didn't know. Yeah. <laughs> so, History is Gay Podcast can be found on Tumblr at History is Gay Podcast, Twitter at, at History is Gay Pod, and then you can always drop us a line with questions, suggestions, or just to say hi at History is Gay Podcast at gmail.com. And if you enjoy the show and want to support us in continuing to make it, there's a couple of different ways you can support us. Uh, We have a lovely little support button on our website now where you can either make a one-time PayPal donation or if you'd like to support us on Patreon, you can get access to Sappho Salon Minisodes, special sneak peeks, the opportunity to have your voice show up in the show as a voice memo or even possibly getting to be on the show as a special guest host, and more. You can become a patron by going to that same support section on our website and signing up. And speaking of Patreon, this episode is brought to you by the Patreon support of Shelby, Shelly, Tashi, Chrono, and Les Represent Podcast. Thank you all so much for your support, and we couldn't do this without you. Woo! Yeah, you know, well, you'll be hearing more and more names as we go through this. We got such a lovely, amazing rush of people to support us in this first month that we're going to spread y'all out. Um, so if you didn't hear your name, wait until the next episode, and we will lovingly shout it out into the ether of podcast land. <laughs> Uh, but until then, you can also now buy awesome merch at our new History is Gay store. So you can just go to historyisgaypodcast.com, click on that store link on our main page, and it'll take you to our store envy where you can buy cool t-shirts and totes like we talked about in the beginning. Yeah. You can also rate, review, and subscribe as usual wherever you get your podcasts. It helps more people find the show, and we can continue to expand our awesome community. That's it for History is Gay. Until next time, stay queer and stay curious. (laughs) 